Our scripture reading this morning is John chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Hey, good morning. Merry Merry Advent, almost Christmas. I'm glad you guys are here. Every Advent, we're uh, we're forced or faced with the question of whether to continue on in whatever book of the Bible I, I've been preaching through or do something more Advent specific. And over the years, and for different reasons, we've done both at different times. Well, providentially, this year in John, we're in one of the most Christmassy passages in the entire Bible, John 3.16. And so we're going we're gonna to stick in John, and John, John 3.17 to 21 aren't on Christmassy either. And so here's where we're going with this. Just just verse 16 this week is what I'm going to preach on. The love of God is shown through Christmas. Next week is 17 and 18. There is no condemnation now through Christmas. And then in verse 18, we'll uh, work through, on the 18th, we'll work through 19 to 21. The light of the world has come through Christmas. So let me give you a series of becauses here. Because this week's text is perhaps the most famous in the Bible, because it's pretty dense, and because it gets us straight to the heart of Christmas, and because I hope this will provide for you in some ways, the way I I work through this verse, provide you in some ways a model for devotionally reading the Bible, especially during Advent right now. We're going to go clause by clause, one, one verse with 11 points. My main aim is to help you better understand and then be drawn into the love of God. So if 11 points sounds overwhelming, when you think of it as a means to that end, I, I hope you find that encouraging and appealing. And so, so here's my main aim once again to help you better understand and be drawn into the love of God through Jesus Christ. I want to help us all experience the genuine love of God. We have to understand what it is and how it came and what it means and what form it took. But we can't end there. That's the means to the end of experiencing God's love for all of us. And so I hope to help you all experience the genuine love of God in greater ways this Advent season as a result of seeing and grasping more fully the awesome truths and promises revealed in in just this, this one verse. So let's pray that by God's grace, it might be so. God, this morning in Berea, Matt helped us to see that we know because you first knew us, 
And he made the parallel in opposite, in the opposite direction that between that and your, your love. He told us that we love because you first loved us as a way of helping us better understand that we know you because you first knew us. But, but God, I, I'm thankful for that reminder just an hour ago that my aim for the sermon, my, my prayer through this week, John's point in writing these things down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that we would know what your love is. We're prone to want to make it what we want it to be, to improve upon it or tweak it or make it fit our desires better. But in this passage, we get a clear glimpse of what your love actually is and where it came from and what it accomplishes. And so I pray that we'd get a better understanding of its very nature, the the nature of your love. You are love. So in that sense, a better understanding of your nature. In order that, through Jesus Christ, we would experience it more fully and live in it more completely, and that it would drive, it drove all of what Jesus did, that it would drive all of what we do, and including the way we engage this, this world, particularly in Advent and especially on Christmas. So, Please, God, help us to understand your love better and drive out our bad understandings of it so that we can experience it more fully. And please, those this morning feeling cold or distant or lonely or hurt, would you overwhelm all of that with the knowledge that they are loved by you through Jesus Christ? Not only them, but all who believe in his name. May that be the case this morning and more. In Jesus' name, amen. So I, I want you to imagine, tru- like truly imagine, taking a walk around your neighborhood this afternoon, and it just so happens that um, uh, your neighbors are outside. Maybe they're um, hanging some lights or something, and they're eager to talk to you. All of those things are probably pretty unlikely, but uh, let's assume for a minute that that is true. Uh, and you're able to come up to them and, and ask them, what does Christmas mean to you? What do you think they'd say if they're being honest? I mean, they, you know, maybe they know you go to church or you're one of those kinds of Christians or something. And, and so they want to, they want to frame their answer in a way that's not true to, let's, let's imagine for a minute they didn't do that. They just were honest. Like you ask them, what does Christmas mean to you? And they're just honest with you. What do you think they'd say? What kind of answers do you think you'd get? Now, I want you to imagine the same thing for yourself. Strip away what you think Pastor Dave wants to hear or somebody in your your parents or somebody wants you to say. If you're being totally honest, what is the main thing that you think about when you consider Christmas? Or, Or what's the main thing that drives whatever you do or don't do during Advent season and then on Christmas Day? Well, when it comes to... The options, there, there's some there's some neat stuff. Family and friends and tradition and food and presents and music. There, there's a lot of neat stuff there. Stuff that really can be honoring to God. Even theologically, biblically, as we read the Bible, Christmas points to a lot of awesome things. But what the question I'm trying to get at is for the people in your life and for yourself personally, what sort of rises to the top among those things? 
Well, this passage helps us to see that above all, all that God does, he does for his glory. All right, well, that's not exactly in here. Let me tell you what I mean. The means by which God has chosen to be glorified, to show his glory, to reveal his glory, the means by which he's chosen to do that varies, but the ultimate goal of all that God does doesn't vary. In that sense, Christmas and everything else is mainly about God putting his glory on display for the world to see and honor and delight in. But again, God's glory is not mainly some mystical, subjective thing. It is, the glory of God is the unlimited greatness of his unchanging being put on display for others to see and marvel at. It is the specific expression of specific attributes. Well, one of the primary attributes of God on display in Christmas is, according to John 3.16, the love of God. There are others, his mercy, his grace, his justice, his patience. But central to Christmas is God's love in Christ. Well, as a non-Christian kid, I was only a non-Christian as a kid, Christmas was definitely mainly about the presents and the parties. As a new Christian, I still liked the presents, um, but the gospel certainly moved to the top of my list. It took on a whole new meaning, what, what it was and why it mattered, and all these pieces I'd sort of grown up around fit together for me in a, in a glorious way. To be honest, though, I really don't think it was until relatively recently that I began to consider how central the love of God is to the meaning of Christmas. It's funny how that that works. That even as I grew in my understanding, my faith, my knowledge of the gospel, my trust in Jesus, it's funny that it just didn't click how central the love of God is to Christmas. For God so loved the world that Christmas happened. That's another Dave translation of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that there was Christmas, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This passage gets tossed around a lot. Although, to be honest, I, I remember distinctly seeing the guys holding up, or people holding up signs at football games, right? John 3.16. I never really knew what that was, but I honestly can't remember the last time I saw that. I wonder... I don't know, maybe it still goes on and I missed it. But but because of that, I think everybody just sort of John 3.16 was out there. But because it's so familiar, if there's any passage, maybe you know Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But if you know two passages, it's probably this one is the other one, or maybe this is the only one. Because of that, it's easy to sort of gloss over, to just quickly move past. It's dense with glory, Grace. It's dense with glory. And so I want to, I want to slow down. We're going to do one verse. It's way slower than we've been moving through John, but it's dense with glory. I want to, I want to help you to see the, the claims that are in this as a means of more honoring God by seeing his glory, by experiencing his love. And I hope that leaks out in the way we all celebrate Christmas. So the first term of 11 that we're going to look at to consider is the first term. Four. In this case, it introduces something important. Namely, that what follows 
is a bit of commentary from John. It doesn't mean for in the sense that he'll use it in other places, like a grounding clause. Instead, here's if you if you're if you care about grammar, which like probably two of you do, if that. It's an explanatory conjunction. Now, that matters because when you see fours, and and it's not to get too sidetracked, but especially when Paul writes, John's a little different. But when Paul writes. You have to understand what kind of for it is. And in this case, it's an explanatory conjunction. And the point is, John is indicating, the gospel writer is indicating that he is about to explain what Jesus just said. So in particular, John 3, 16 to 21, the passage up on the screen, John is further unpacking what Jesus taught, especially in 3, 13 to 15. In other words, the passage on the screen is a further unpacking of Jesus' teaching that Jesus has come from God, that he will be lifted up to rescue mankind from our sin, and that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. So this passage is John's commentary on Jesus' teaching just prior in in John 3. That's what the four is for. The second term is the second term, God. If you've been around Grace for a while, you've certainly heard us talk about the importance of letting God define God. We're pretty bad at that as a whole, as a society. We like to create a God in our own image. I've read this before in sermons. I want to read it again. Uh, It'd be good to write this down and check this out later in the whole context. But it's Isaiah 44, 13 to 17. Have you read this? Do you remember this? The carpenter. It's talking about a carpenter. This is God rebuking Israel. The carpenter cuts down cedars. All right, so far so good. If you're a carpenter, you work with wood. you got to build stuff. To do that, you got to have wood. So they cut down cedars or choose a cypress tree or an oak tree and lets it grow among the trees in the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. So far so good. Verse 15, then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and, and he warms itself, so cuts it down. He, you know, the, over here, he uses it to build stuff, but more fundamentally, he needs to keep warm. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Again, so far, so good. And he also makes a god and worships it. Not, not so good. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Grace, listen to this. This is Isaiah forty-four sixteen. This tree he planted cut it down. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over half of it he he eats meat and he roasts it and is satisfied and warms himself and says, I love this, ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. That makes sense. I'd say that too. Verse 17, and the rest of it he makes into his God, his idol. And he falls down and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Kids, if you're thinking that's stupid, Don't say stupid. But if you're thinking that, you're right. That's stupid. If ever there is a time to use the word stupid, that's it. That's why that word exists. We read things like this and we rightly scoff. We should. We should think, what? Fools. Who would would take a tree and use half for firewood and to get warm and to eat from and then decide to use the other half to make a God to worship. What what kind of God would that even 
be? Why would you even want to do that? It's silly to do it, but why would you even want to do it? What kind of God shares an essential nature with cooking fuel and is created by the one who worships him? Who would be so foolish as to trust in a God that was carved by their own hands? The problem is that's exactly what most people do, even you and I. The ways we do it aren't always as obvious as the carpenter in Isaiah 44, but they're no less foolish. It is always important to be clear on who God really is, but it's especially important around Christmas when the idea is we're celebrating his coming to dwell among us. Way too many people have created, not with wood in their hands probably, we don't do a lot with idols these days, physical idols, Way too many people have created a God in their own image to either believe in or reject. They make it up and say, I don't believe in that God. Well, good news, neither do I, right? Or they make it up to believe in, to celebrate, or to dismiss. Again, all of us, Grace, you do this. I do this to some degree. All of us do. We all come to our understanding of God by taking some of this and some of that. Some from the Bible and Sunday school and some from Oprah and the the bestsellers we see on the shelf or from bad radio stations or whatever. But we all do that to some degree. For the rest of our time on earth, Christians are continually, prayerfully asking God to transform our minds, to renew our minds through the Spirit and the Word, to know Him more and to know Him rightly. Grace, God's Word is where God has primarily and definitively revealed his, Himself to us, His true nature to us. Celebrating Christmas in the highest, then, God with us, Emmanuel, begins then with the Word. We have to be people of the Word of God. Your Advent, if it's going to be spent rightly, if you're going to experience the love of God fully, it's going to be God, not something you've made up and called God, something you've hi- you've created and named God. You with me, Grace? Celebrating Christmas in the highest means being people of the word. All right, here's the next one. We're going to pick up the pace a little bit. Forwards. So love the world. For God so loved the world. We'll see shortly that God's love took a particular form, namely sending Jesus to bring eternal life to all who would believe in him. But for now, I invite you to simply marvel at the news that there is a manner in which God loves the world. It is, a remarkable, it is remarkable in large measure because of the nature of the love of God and the nature of the world which he loves. The nature of the love of God and the nature of the world in which the, the world which he loves. The, the nature of love. Just like the nature of God has been hijacked, people creating him in his own image to believe or re- reject. In the same way, so too has the nature of love been hijacked all over the place. And the interesting thing for me as I was thinking about this this week is it's been hijacked in opposite directions and everywhere in between. What do I mean by that? Some redefine love to, in their minds, show the goodness of God. They, they claim to believe in God. It happens to be one they made up. Um, but they redefine the love of God to show the goodness of God. I have in mind those who speak of God's love such that he is never angry with sin. 
He's glad for everyone to come to him on their terms. He's not, he's not really interested in whether you conform to the image that he has created you in or honor him as God. He's just glad that you come to him on whatever terms you see fit. And so in that sense, love for people who redefine it this way is something like affirming people no matter what. I love you if I affirm you no matter what. I'm just so happy for you to do you. Well, on the other end of the spectrum, others redefine it, the love of God, to argue for God's non-existence. So these people are trying to make God more palpable, more domesticated, so that more people will come to him. On the other end, they redefine it to argue for his non-existence. There's no way, they boldly assert, that a loving God would allow for the kinds of evil and suffering that exist in the world today. Their, their version of love is incompatible with that. And in that sense, love is something like the commitment to hold back evil or suffering from others, which certainly there's a component of that in it, but it misses something fundamental. Just like we are not free to redefine God, we're not free to redefine the love of God, for God is love. He, he is not whatever we might make him out to be, And neither is his love, Grace. In simple and common terms, you've heard this, the love of God, as it's used in this passage, is the affectionate pursuit of that which is best for the world. God is affectionately pursuing that which is best for the world. It does not mean that he's happy about everything that people in the world do on one end. In fact, the love of God here is an expression of the opposite. It's because he's not happy with much of what the world does His love comes to us. And it does not mean that he will end all suffering. Many reject his love altogether. But it does mean that the rest of the verses describe God's delight to bring to mankind what we need most. That's awesome. So the nature of the love of God sets us apart and the nature of the world that God loves. That God has that kind of love for the world might sound normal, In some ways it is, but before we can ever really appreciate it, we must truly grasp what this means. It means that God loves the fallen, broken, treasonous people of the world. As the particular expression of the love of God mentioned in this passage makes clear, the love of God is not directed at the lovely, but at the sinful rebel, at those who have willingly chosen to reject God as God and make him their enemy. This is the only passage, did you know this? This is the only passage in the New Testament that explicitly describes the love of God for the world, this, the world in this way. It's an awesome reality. So again then, to celebrate Christmas well means understanding who God really is, not who you've made him out to be. And what love is, not what you've made it out to be. And that both are right at the heart of what makes Christmas worth celebrating above almost everything else. The fourth clause, need to back up a little bit, which means the previous one was actually, I said it was four words, but it's only three, because we're going to look at one of them again. So, so, we briefly need to consider the meaning of so. For God so loved the world. What do you think that means? I know what I thought it meant for a long time. I, I misunderstood what he was saying and took it as a reference to the quantity, the amount of love God had for the world. As in, God loved the world so much that he, 
But it is not a a description of the amount of love God had for the world, but the form that it took. So a clearer translation, and some of your Bibles might do this, God loved the world in such a way that, or to say it again, in this way God showed his love for the world or expressed his love to the world. God honoring Christians, Christmas celebrations, God honoring Christmas celebrations and Christmas celebrations that have the most oomph behind them are rooted in the knowledge that God's love is at the center and that it takes a particular form. We are not to celebrate generically or according to mere tradition or nostalgia. We celebrate the actual content of the love of God. So what is that? You with me still? The fifth clause tells us the beginning of the content, the form that God's love took. He gave. The fifth clause I want you to consider is that he gave. He loved the world in such a way that he gave the world something. His son, his only son. The main point that I want you to see here in this clause is the intentionality, the purposefulness of God's love. He gave his son. Jesus was not taken from heaven. He was given by God. Jesus did not escape from heaven. He was given by God. Jesus did not end up on earth by accident. He was given by God. Jesus was given as a baby, conceived by the Spirit and born of the Virgin. And Jesus was given grace. I don't don't know if you've slowed down enough to think this way. It's not natural. We, We just go too quick through this. But Jesus was given. When it says, for God so loved the world that he gave, Jesus was given to be an example, to suffer, to die, and to rise again. That's all in he gave. The term he gave seems way too simple to include all of that, but it does. We'll miss it, as many of us have done many times, if we don't slow down. So we're slowing down. Christmas is good news of great joy and worth celebrating in the highest because it is a celebration of the intentional love of God in the giving of that which is best for us. Well, what's that, you might ask? What then did God's love drive him to intentionally give? What is best for us? The sixth clause in this passage tells us, again, he gave us his only son. It's quite a statement. If I said to you, reach under your chairs, Oprah style, underneath is a $25 gift certificate to Chipotle for all of you, you'd all say, man, Pastor Dave, you're the greatest. Maybe you wouldn't. But if I said, okay, forget that, reach under, it's a weeks-long, all-inclusive trip for each one of you to to the Florida Keys. Well, that's even crazier still. How much are we paying this guy? Yeah, right. Not enough for that. But if I said to you, reach under your chair and pull out from under it, and here is a deal, you get all my kids. Yeah, well, no, no thank you, right, I guess. But, but, but here's, the, here's the thing. I mean, it sort of breaks down because you know my kids. But, but, but here's the deal here. There's no way I would do that. Never, never in a million years. On earth, there's nothing more precious to me other than my wife, than my kids. And so you don't get them. You can have all my stuff. You can have everything I own, everything I have. You can have all that before I would ever give you them because they they are precious to me. All of the other stuff times a thousand doesn't get you 
the value of my kids to me. God gave us his only son. Christmas finds a great deal of its meaning and celebration and fuel right there. So think for a minute, who, who is this son given in love by God whom we celebrate at Christmas? His name is Jesus. And so far in John's gospel, let me just give you a brief recap. We're only in the middle of chapter three, but this is what we've seen already. This is who God gave to the world. He is the eternal word of God, the one through whom all things were made, the unquenchable light and everlasting light of the world, the one whom prophets foretold, the one who makes sinners children of God, the one who became flesh and lived among us, the one who was filled with the glory, grace, and truth of the Father, the one who makes the Father known, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world, the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, the teacher, the Christ, the one who sees all things, the King of Israel, the miracle worker, the temple cleanser, the one who knows the hearts of men and the one who will die for the sins of the world. That's just two and a half chapters. As we continue to make our way through the gospel, we'll see more and more and more of the nature of the one whom the Father gave in love. Grace truly celebrating Christmas is a celebration filled with knowledge of the love of God given to us in the Son of God. And so it's filled with knowledge of who Jesus is. We simply cannot honor God in our Christmas celebrations if they are not directly attached to the true nature of Jesus. Advent exists. Why, why, why do we have this sort of month-long deal leading up to Christmas? It exists for the very purpose of focusing our minds on exactly the types of things John and John 3.16 tell us about Jesus. That's what this is for. I mean, there's a way to use it for getting your shopping done and and hanging stuff around the house and whatever. There's a way that you can use it for all of those things. But if you're using it for those things over and against or apart from or separate from pursuing Christ, you're missing it. You're completely you're completely whiffing it. It's it's Missing the point entirely. Christmas is the good news that Jesus, God's son, has come to dwell among us because of the love of God for us. Seventh, we're flying. Concerns the words his His only, focusing on his only, his only son. Well, what does that mean? I thought you and I were, if we're, if we're Christians anyway, I thought we were sons and daughters of God. John himself wrote a letter. This is John's gospel. He wrote a letter, and in 1 John 3, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children, sons and daughters of God. And so we are. So what does that, what does that mean, that Jesus is his only son? I read a little bit of the Chalcedonian Creed to you before. I'm going to read a little bit of it again with the Nicene Creed as well. The Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, complete in Godhead, truly God, of one substance with the Father, begotten of the Father before the ages, Son and only begotten God of the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from the earliest times spoke of him, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us. And here's the Nicene Creed. I I believe in, we believe in, to, to believe in 
John 3.16 is to believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father, before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. The primary thrust of the expression only, as an only Son of God, is in the fact that Jesus alone is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal word, the eternal son, the eternally begotten of God. Christmas is not about celebrating just any man, just any person, just any birth, but about that of the everlasting, perfect God-man. The more we can come to know the true nature of this Jesus who was given to us in love from the Father, the more full and joyful our Christmas celebrations will be. Take all the nostalgia you can muster. Take all the decorations you can purchase. Take all the cute kids and the programs that you can handle. Take all the presents, all the events, and all the rest. Combine them, multiply them by a million, and you don't even come within a galaxy of genuine Holy Spirit-given understanding of the glory of the only Son of God. That's Christmas. Here's the next one, eight. We all know that the whole world does not experience the love of God in Christmas. What's going on there? We are right to ask, therefore, how this works. How does God's love for the world relate to what the world actually experiences? Is it that he loves everybody, but only a few receive it, or is it something else? John plainly answers that those questions for us. The eighth clause to consider is that the love of God for the world was expressed in the giving of the Son and is able to be received by whoever. That's the key word is whoever. Whoever believes in him. Grace, the good news of Christmas is that every single person, picture your neighbor, picture your family, picture your friends, picture your kids, picture your parents, picture your siblings. Every single person, No matter your age, your ethnic group, your sex, your language, your education level, your popularity, your income, your appearance, your health, your past sins, your religious background, or anything else, every single person can know the true love of God in Jesus Christ. And that is good news indeed. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your family. The love of God is ready to flow freely and without end to whoever will believe in him. Paul says, Paul says in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Christmas is great news because it is for all who will receive it. Nine, however, as we've seen over the past few weeks, the love of God is for those who will truly believe in him. I'm not going to re-preach the last two week sermons, but I'm going to say this. There are many forms of unbelief, people who don't believe in the love of God coming through Jesus Christ. And there are perhaps even more forms of unbelieving belief. Those will not do. They are not what John is talking about. Unbelief and unbelieving belief alike will not allow us to experience the love of God. By believe in him, John means genuine belief in the gospel flowing from the work of the Spirit. It is the kind of belief that results from having apprehended the holiness of God, our own sinfulness, the wages of our sin, and the sufficient, amazing grace of Jesus. It is the kind of belief that increasingly trusts in the promises and delights in the commands of God. It is believing belief. 
Christmas is for believing believers. In fact, our growing joy in celebrating the coming of the Son of God. Think about Christmas. Think about your approach to Christmas. Think about what happens in your mind and in your heart. And as you grow, to be thankful for the first coming. And by the way, we're in perpetual Advent. We have a month of Advent to prepare to celebrate the first coming of Jesus. And we're in a perpetual Advent as we await his second coming. And as you consider these things, one of the great tests to whether or not you're you believe in the way that John says is what's happening in your hearts as you contemplate the coming of the Son of God and the coming again of the Son of God. As that grows, as your experience of joy builds, that's one sign that you believe in the way that John says. The tenth clause helps us to see that there are even more ways the love of God is expressed to everyone who believes. That is, is good of news as we've already seen the love of God comes to us in a particular form by the giving of Jesus. There's more still. God's love for the world is such that on account of it, Jesus was given for those who would believe in him and in such a way that we will never die. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Let me say a word about that. This is not a promise that we will never die physically. I think you probably all know that. Most likely all of us will. It is a promise that true believers will never die spiritually. Okay, what do I mean by that? We saw last week that because we are all born alive physically but dead spiritually, we need to be reborn. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. We need to be born again, spiritually born. Once we are spiritually born, John promises that we Even if we die physically, we can never die spiritually. Physical death is merely the doorway for our spirit or soul to live with God in heaven forever. If we are made spiritually alive, we can never spiritually perish. But it's more than that still. The spiritual perishing that will never happen for all who believe in God because of the love of God is hell. You realize that? Shall never perish is referring to hell. It's no small promise. The ultimate blessing, which is the last clause, which we're almost to, is eternal life. But that news is doubly good because we get it instead of spiritual death, eternal spiritual death. If I tell you I've got $1,000 for you, that's pretty neat. If you're $1,000 in debt, that's neater still. If you have spiritual death over you because of your sin, And I tell you that that's removed. Man, is that a reason to celebrate. It is the matchless love of God that keeps us from the everlasting destruction we deserve. So let me ask you one more simple question before we get to the last point. What have you ever seen? Ten ten clauses deep right now. What have you ever seen that can compare to these things? What can the world possibly offer? I mean, think of the deals on Amazon or whatever store you're looking at, that thing you want that you're following it to find when the price gets just right. Some of you are super savvy at this, you know, to wait till the day after Christmas or something like that, or you nailed Black Friday. or If you got all of that for the best deal ever and a thousand more things, what in the world can possibly, what, what, can the, what that the world can offer possibly comes within a million miles 
of the truths contained in this single verse. And there's so much more. There's, there's so much more, Grace. What is more worth celebrating at Christmas than these things? And yet we let it, don't we? We, we let other things, even though we know this, we let it choke, choke it out. The 11th and final clause is sort of the other side of that coin. If not eternal death, we get eternal life. Not only does the love of God and Jesus Christ make those who believe unable to die spiritually, but it also leads to everlasting life as well. Christmas is ultimately about God lovingly sending the means by which we can be reconciled to him, rescued from our sin and death, reconciled to God and restored to the kind of fellowship with God that we were made for. At Christmas, Jesus came to dwell among us so that we could dwell with God forever. That's awesome. Here's my conclusion. When Christmas is rightly understood as the love of God manifest in the person of Jesus, And for the eternal life of all who believe and the canceling out of the eternal death that we all deserve, then it is truly worth celebrating. Grace, I hope you're seeing how different, much better a John 3.16 Christmas is than anything and everything else the world knows. Tragically, even that much of those of us in the church know at times, each of the 11 points or what make for a good advent. Unpack them one at a time. Make your ornament. Make an ornament that says so on it. For real, make an ornament that says so. And people are like, that's weird. What do you have an ornament that says so on it? And then share the gospel with them. How awesome is that? Make an ornament that says for. The first clause in here. But these 11 things are what we ought to be focusing on. These truths are what make good Christmas decorations and good tree ornaments. They're what are worth singing about. They are the things we're singing about. It is when these truths take proper root in our minds and our hearts that most of what makes up Christmas makes sense and honors God. All the food and parties and gifts and decorations are meant to be an expression of our gladness of these things, not to replace them as they so often do. And yet, it is the truths of John 3.16 that make those things make sense. We have to manifest them somehow, and those things are the things that God has given us to manifest them. So let's get the order right. Gladness in the love of God through Jesus Christ given to us, that we might not perish but have everlasting life. And from that, what do we do? How do we express that gladness? Well, we make an ornament that says so, and we have good food, and we invite people over, and we laugh, and we're merry because the love of God is upon us. We love because he first loved us.